The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Worship with you, this is different for me, so uh, anyways, bear with me. But um, one of the clearest teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was that true discipleship comes at great cost. True discipleship comes at great cost. So simply put, discipleship to Christ or to be a discipleship or to be a disciple of Jesus is to simply be a Christian. All Christians will follow Christ. And true Christians will suffer the loss of a great many different things to follow Christ. God's word makes this so abundantly clear to us. If someone is not willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, and he cannot be Christ's disciple. In Matthew, uh, Jesus says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. This teaching is so important, it shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Again, Scripture, time and time again, it just tells us that true discipleship can cost us everything. Following Christ can even cost us family relationships. The Lord doesn't always take away family relationships, but he says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. No, Jesus is not saying that his disciples have to just have a a hatred in their heart towards their family members, but uh, obviously Christ taught that hatred in our hearts really is to have a murderous attitude, but what he is saying is all other relationships, even amongst our, our closest family relationships, they ought to pale in comparison to the loving devotion that we would have to him. That's a really strong statement when we think about it. That even spouses and children would be the type of relationships that we would be willing to depart from for the sake of following Christ. Discipleship can certainly cost us our family can even cost our own lives. He says that in this portion too, that it may even cost your own life. In this uh, portion of Luke, Jesus gives several illustrations in that are instructing us, count the cost. You say you want to be my disciple, then count the cost before you embark on such a thing. Jesus ends this discourse and he says, so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up his own possessions. So all the things that you hold dear to you, not, not just even physical possessions, but possessions of status in the respect of men, religious achievements, or even your own righteousness, our own deeds, our own obedience to God's law. In a matter of just a few verses, Jesus says that it's going to cost us all that we own, all relationships, and even your own life to follow him. He instructs us to deny ourselves. Again, to deny yourself, take up your cross to follow him. You might be saying to yourself, wait a sec. If I I have to lose my spouse, my children potentially, all that I own, all that I am, 
what was it that I was supposed to gain again? In church history, it tells us that all the disciples, they willingly lost all their lives, except John, who is banished, and uh, even missionaries and faithful servants throughout church history, they, they've suffered the loss of all things, and remarkably, they've done it very joyfully. So how can this be? If the cost of following Christ is the steep loss of all things, what is it that we gain? What could possibly motivate somebody to give up all things, potentially die a horrific death even, lose all their status, their religious achievements, for the sake of Christ? We certainly know that we gain eternal life, and it's good to, uh, to desire eternal life, but what I want to point our attention to is, do we see the immeasurable value of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Do we gladly give up all things that we have, all things that we hold dear, for the sake of gaining Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord? And I pose to you that if we indeed understand exactly who Christ is, and we would all joyfully and gladly give up all that we have for the sake of gaining Christ. And I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 3 this morning, for the text that we'll be looking at, Philippians chapter 3. And as you flip there, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. What are, what are some of the things that he once thought of as gain? What were the accolades and the achievements and statuses that Paul had prior to his conversion? In Acts 9, when the Lord Jesus himself confronts Paul on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's this shift that's occurring in Paul's affections? What's the internal view of himself that's now changing? Uh, well, again, we're in Philippians 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 3, even though we're just looking at really verses 11, 8 through 11 this morning. But please follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision, this is Paul speaking, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So in this passage, we gain insight. What did the unconverted Paul count as gain in his own life? In fact, he says if anyone had any reason to have any confidence in their own flesh, it was him. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, well, how zealous is he? He's persecuting the church, he says. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. You see, Paul's confidence of where he stood with the Lord 
was based on really this list of achievements, on his heritage and his privileged status as a Jew. These were the things that he held on to as gain. But when Christ calls Paul to himself, there's this radical reorientation of his affections and what he holds near and dear. Verse 7, he writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. So Paul's entire list, again, that he's counted as gain and the things that he thought that gave him favor before the Lord, now he says all of those things he counts as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. And he continues that thought. He says in verse 8, more than that. So building off what he just said in verse 7, not only are all those accolades lost for the sake of Christ, he adds, he says, I count all things to be loss. Again, not just the list of things in verse 5 and 6. More than that, I count all things to be lost, things past, things present, things future. All things are now lost. His possessions, his relationships, his achievements, his religiosity, just all of it. And I'd like to point out one thing, that not everything on this list in and of itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Certainly persecuting the church, that's wicked and evil. But Paul points out his Jewish heritage. His Jewishness, again, it's not a bad thing. It's actually good. Romans 3, Paul writes about his Jewishness, and he he reminds his reader that it's great advantage to be Jewish. He says it's great in every respect, that they receive the oracles of God. Being Jewish, they would have had the Old Testament scriptures. They would have had the way of salvation. They would have had these things. So what what Paul is not saying in Philippians is... um, that necessarily these, these things or these gifts that God can give are bad. He's not saying that at all, but if you hold on to these things more than Christ, that's when these are all loss. All things that would be held more valuable than Christ. Anything that would have offered him any sort of being justified before God, these are what's the loss to him. The very things that he would have previously thought assisted in his right standing or in his righteousness... That's what the loss is. They were actually keeping him eternally apart from God. But now Paul says with joy, he says it's loss. Why is it loss? Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He gladly gives up all things because there is surpassing, exceeding an infinite value in knowing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice again, what Paul's not fixed upon is he's not fixed upon the surpassing value of eternal life. Paul's excitement in giving up all that he has is that he's gained the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he says there's surpassing joy in knowing Christ relationally. More than that, I count all things to be lost because the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What, again, realize what he's not saying. He's not talking about knowing about Christ. Mental assent to facts. It's never saved anybody. It never will. James reminds his reader, he says, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. Listen, you believe God's one? Great. Demons believe that. They also agree God's one. That the, the, Their sheer uh, response and reaction is to shudder. That shows they actually know a great deal about God. They know exactly where they stand positionally. So knowing about him is not what saves anybody. 
the depths of any academic theological knowledge without personal and experiential knowledge and relationship to Christ, it makes you no more saved than the pagan who's never heard about Christ. In fact, the pagan has a lot less judgment than those that have heard the truth, that know all these facts about Christ and yet choose to reject them. Jesus in Matthew, he gives us a really sobering reminder of this in Matthew 7. You're familiar with it. He speaks of the deceived that think they're in right relationship with him. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? In your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These who are going to be deceived on the last days certainly thought they knew the Lord. They certainly knew about him. They're claiming that they did religious, religious deeds in his name. So clearly they knew of Christ. But what does Jesus say to them? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practicer of lawlessness. Jesus, he gives us actually a lot of insight into the characteristics of those who do know him in this passage. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. But who does he say will enter? The one who does the will of his father. That's who enters. The one who disobeys his father? Jesus says, I never knew you. Those who truly know Christ, make no mistake about it, they are known also by Christ. To know Christ means you're to also be known by Christ. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. You see that? The sheep, they know him, and he knows them. And not only that, it's his sheep that he's laying his life down for. Nobody else. It's for his sheep. He continues, but you do not believe me, Because you are not my sheep. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see what he points out again? His sheep know him, and they follow him. Jesus also says this about his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. His sheep know him. They are known by him. They follow him as evidence of that. And it's his sacrifice of his own life that is to the benefit of his sheep only. So why would Paul so gladly give up all that he has? Because the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his personal Lord. Because knowing Christ is to gain the fullness of Christ. Before Paul expounds again on the gain of Christ and what exactly he does gain in Christ, he takes one final shot his past accolades. Look with me again at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul's disdain for these past things, it's just escalating. All these things that he'd previously held held on to as gain, he finally says, He counts all these things as loss. He calls them rubbish. And I don't want to breeze past that. He calls it rubbish. 
The word that Paul really uses here, it describes just vile waste, can be used to describe table scraps or even dung. So Paul viewed all things in his past as no more valuable than table scraps or dung for the sake of gaining Christ. The very thought of holding on to anything is more valuable than Christ is just absolutely repulsive and it's sickening to Paul. Which again is why Paul says that he considers it rubbish so that he may gain Christ. Paul already has said that there's a surpassing value in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And he now explains specifically treasures that we gain in Christ Jesus. And um, for those of you that keep notes, we're going to be examining five different treasures that we gain in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul shifts his focus there now. So starting in verse 9, our, our first treasure that we gain in Christ is treasure of union with Christ. Treasure, with, uh, treasure of having union with Christ. He says, and to be found in him. What Paul expresses in this statement, it's just the deeper truth of knowing Christ. To know Christ is to be found in him, to be unified with him. Paul in his epistles, he uses this phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in him. He uses this over 200 times to describe the believer. It's one of his favorite ways to describe a believer. What he speaks of, he's speaking of the spiritual identity of all who possess true saving faith in Christ. We are in Christ. We are intimately and we're eternally united to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, he explains in great detail exactly how it is that we're united to Christ. All people in their natural condition, they share the same federal head. Well, Romans 5 kind of explains this thought to us. Romans 5 tells us that Adam is our representative in that way. <clears throat> that since Adam sinned, all, his, all, all Adam's seed, all humanity, all of us now share in Adam's guilt. We all share in Adam's guilt. Adam, in a sense, again, he's a representative to all humanity. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because Adam sinned, sin came to us all. So Paul's purpose in pointing this out is just as sin and death spread to all men um, because all men are in Adam, well, those who are justified By faith in Christ, we now have a new federal head in Christ Jesus. Paul explains Adam was simply a type of him who was to come. So just as sin and and death entered into the world through Adam's disobedience, now through Christ's perfect obedience, life and justification are now the results of any whom he represents. And who does he represent? He's representing the redeemed. That's who, that's who Christ is the, the head of now. So no longer is anyone in Adam. They are now in Christ. And because they're in Christ, they share with Christ in his victory. So uh, turn with me now in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 6. Back to our left a little bit. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. I'd love for you to see this. <clears throat> In Romans, Paul, he explains this doctrine of justification by faith with just precision. And he finds it necessary to not only explain how one is justified, but the practical results of that justification. 
And in Romans 6, Paul labors the fact that justified people are, are in fact united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're being sanctified. So Romans, uh, Romans 6, chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So here's the reality. If you're in Christ, you're united to Christ. You're also united with Christ in his death. Continuing on. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So you've died with Christ, and just as he died, we too have died to sin. Sin is no longer our master. Verse 7, for he who has died has been justified from sin. He's been declared righteous. He's been justified. So, verse, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives he lives to God. So because you are united with him in both his death and resurrection, Paul says, here's, here's how we respond. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because you're baptized into Christ, because we, as Paul says, we're found in Christ. Here's the Treasure Valley Bible Church. You're dead to sin, and you're alive to God in Christ Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Here's the reality of it. Since he's been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You're united again with Christ. You forever are united with Christ at that. You're found in him. And when, when he says uh, to be found in him, this could be simply understood as proven to be. So Paul's saying, we are proven to be without question in Christ. We're united with the Lord. What a tremendous comfort this is that you irrevocably are united to the Lord Jesus Christ from now on and forevermore. You're united to Christ forever. The second treasure that Paul identifies that he has in Christ is Christ's righteousness. Turn with me back to Philippians chapter 3, if you would. The second treasure we possess is the imputation of his own righteousness. Verse 9 again. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. In our union with Christ, we share with his death and resurrection. How? Because we've been justified. In other words, you have been given a declaration of righteousness. When, it, when he uses this word here, the, the word righteousness, he's not speaking about practical morality right now. He's, he's talking rather a legal standing. God being holy and just, he demands perfect righteousness. So anything short of that righteousness, it's not acceptable to him. So listen to what Paul says again. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, 
Why can't righteousness come from obedience to the law? Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be declared righteous. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul, in this critical part of Romans, after two and a half chapters of indicting the entire human race, reminds his reader one last time that no person can be and will ever be justified by the law. The law actually stands to condemn us. It reveals to us our sin. No one can obey the entirety of the law. In fact, in Galatians, as Paul is correcting this error from the Judaizers that, well, you're saved by grace and obedience to the law, he finds it necessary, uh, or you're, you're saved by grace and the law, and they're saying that's what's required for justification. He reminds them that if you hold yourself to one standard of the law, then you, are, you also need to be obedient to the entirety of the law. So again, you stand condemned. We all stand condemned because we've all transgressed God's law. So do you see what a treasure that is? To have this alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not of our own, it's now applied to us, and it's satisfactory to the demands of the law. In the second half of verse 9, Paul, he just delights in this. He says, uh, he has a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. This righteousness is acceptable to God. The only, the only acceptable righteousness has to come from God himself. It can't come from us. If his, again, if his standard is perfect righteousness, only the, the only perfect righteousness that exists that could ever come to our aid, come to our benefit, is that of Christ Jesus. And what Paul says, he says it's through faith, because of Christ, he himself is now justified. He's declared righteous. Well, how is, how is this actually accomplished? He reminds us it's by the means of faith. When God declares a sinner righteous, this isn't by any worth or action of the sinner. It's purely a gift of his sovereign grace. But the means in which he distributes that to us, it distributes to us that declaration of righteousness, it's accomplished by the means of faith, saving faith. This has always been the means in which God's justified anyone. Paul, Paul reminds us of what it says in Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our justification, it is a gift. But again, this, this gift has been and always will be applied through the means of faith. God didn't leave sin unpunished by any means. As the Lord Jesus himself, he, he, he bore the penalty uh, for all who would believe. Christ redeemed us by the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So just as righteousness was applied to us, our sin was now applied to him. We had this imputation of righteousness. Well, now our sin is being imputed upon him. And he was crushed on our behalf to satisfy the demands of God's law. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. Uh, Spurgeon says this. I think it's, just, it's a helpful way of reminding ourselves of this. God looked at Christ as if he were you so that he could look upon you as if you were Christ. He had perfect relation with his son. He looked at his son with favor, obviously. Well, because sin was paid for through his son, 
That's what our adoption is. We don't stand condemned. We're no longer condemned because our sin was punished in Christ. He was offered up and he was found to be satisfactory in his atonement. So um, his righteousness through faith, again, it can now be credited to anyone who, who believes. So positionally, in Christ, you stand completely and totally righteous. You're acceptable to him in all ways on the basis of his son. This is, again, this isn't talking about our practical righteousness. Because as we're being sanctified, we should be made more and more like Christ. But practically, we're not righteous. But positionally, we are righteous. That's what Paul's talking about. You see what a treasure that is. The psalmist says, Lord, if you were to count our sin, oh, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And then he encourages Israel to wait upon the Lord. Well, why? Because in the Lord alone is loving kindness abundant redemption, a redeemer for Israel. With God himself is where our redeemer is. God is our redeemer. Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, is our redeemer. So we share in that. We have a redeemer. And that's why Paul, again, he's so gladly forsaking all that he's achieved. Again, he calls it rubbish because all those acts that he thought was justifying him, all the obedience to the law that he thought was justifying him, was condemning him even further. So that's why he just gladly pitches all those things out the window and he says uh, that he has a righteousness that is from God. That's a huge treasure for us. That's something we could never earn. He now possesses perfect righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third treasure he recognizes that he possesses in Christ is experientially Knowing the power of Christ in his resurrection. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He already, he already talked about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. But he adds on to this, not only knowing him, but knowing the power of his resurrection. As we talked earlier, just, just as knowing Christ is relational and experiential, well, so is knowing the power of his resurrection. It's not, it's not, again, just knowing about the resurrection. And we looked at this in Romans 6. Since we are in him, since we're united to him, we share not just in his death, but we're also unified with him in his resurrection. So the same power that rose Jesus up from the dead is the same power that's in us, Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This power is actually indwelling you by the indwelling presence of the spirit. Because you're unified with Christ, you have this same power in you. Romans 6 reminds us that we're dead to sin and we're now alive to God in Christ. And it's in light of that reality, in light of sharing in the power of his, his victory in the resurrection, that he says, he says this, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. The power of the resurrection that we have in us is the same power that now allows us to live obediently to the law. That's what's sanctifying us. Because of this reality, Paul says, you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end eternal life. 
So again, it's not just the power that's giving that gave Jesus the, the power of the resurrection or us the power. Um, yeah. It's the same power that's accomplishing in us our sanctification. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in us to live obediently to him. We gain this, we gain this treasure. It allows us to obey in a way that we did not and we could not before. Same power of his resurrection. And it's, it's allowing us to progressively be sanctified. So again, I hope we see what a gift that this is. That we have the power to now live obediently to him. Because we did not have that before. But we do now. In Philippians 2, Paul tells the Philippians, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, be sanctified. Pursue Christ-likeness. Die to self. And the basis for this, well, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God himself is working in you. And now you experientially know the power of the resurrection. The evidence of this is simply obeying him. The fourth treasure that we possess in Christ is fellowshipping with Christ in his suffering. Look with me at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. It's going to come to no surprise to any of us that know our Bibles that we are no strangers to suffering. Jesus reminds his disciples that in this world you will have tribulations. We really just examined how we share with Christ in the victory of his resurrection. But we would be short-sighted to breeze past what Paul is saying here. He says, we are being conformed to his death. What does it mean to be conformed to his death? Just as Christ endured death and pain and ridicule and suffering beyond all imagination we also must expect that we very possibly could endure the same things. If we're united to Christ, again, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, we would be very foolish to think that we would be exempt from maybe some of the same sorrows and griefs and persecutions. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. You may be sitting here kind of thinking, well, how could that be a treasure that I'm going to be persecuted? I mean, Christ, as we think about Christ, he endured the most unjust, vile treatment of anyone that's ever walked this earth. And somehow, am I supposed to enjoy that suffering that he endured as well? Is suffering something that I should be seeking after? Do I go out of my way to find suffering? Well, the treasure here is this, that in light of this reality, again, it's a reality, just like we saw in 2 Timothy, uh, that you will be persecuted. Well, that's the reality. But in light of that reality, those of us that are um, in Christ, we have fellowship with him in this suffering Again, not just fellowship with anyone. We have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself in suffering. (laughs) 
you have fellowship with him in suffering. That's a treasure. It's a huge treasure. It's a huge gain. Because again, this is reality. It's going to happen. You again, you are never, ever, ever going to suffer alone again. Your trials and grief, it's not something that you ever bear alone again. Isaiah wrote like 700 years before Christ. And he reminded, he was, he was writing to Israel, he's saying that a virgin shall come and shall bear a child, and the name of this child will be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Well, Matthew, in his gospel, he introduces us to the child Emmanuel. Joseph gets this vision from the angel that the child Emmanuel is coming to Mary. And then at the end of Matthew, when Emmanuel is with his followers, what does, what does he remind them? He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He isn't just there with us in our time of blessing. He's, he's with us in our time of suffering as well. So when, when Paul endured that messenger from Satan, that thorn in the flesh, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that this would be removed from him. And what did God do? He reminded him, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. No, Paul, I'm not removing this from you, but my grace is more than sufficient for you. And considering the sufficiency of God's grace, Paul recognizes that in his own weakness, the power of Christ is actually magnified. So Paul finds contentment with his own weakness and insults and distress and persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ Because in his weakness, the indwelling power of Christ is actually being magnified. As as weak as we are, when we participate in suffering, we have fellowship with the very one and the only one that could ever give us power and grace to endure in that suffering. We have an incalculable treasure in having Christ Jesus himself in suffering. So when you suffer, when you endure trials... You have fellowship with your great high priest. You you have fellowship with the one who's making intercession for you, the one that can sympathize with you in all ways, the one who promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. That's who you have fellowship with in Christ. So Paul's brought our attention to the treasures we have in Christ by union with Christ, the imputation of righteousness, experientially knowing the power of Christ and then fellowshipping with him in suffering, well, we get to our final treasure that he points out. This is the sureness of the final resurrection. That's our last treasure that we're looking at, the sureness of the final resurrection. Look with me at verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. When Paul says resurrection of the dead, he's describing the resurrection that occurs at the Lord's coming. We have seen the value of Christ already to justify us. We've seen the power of Christ and the gain of Christ to sanctify us. Now he shifts his focus to glorification. When even our bodies are redeemed. And some some of you might be looking at this. Some of your translations might say, in order that I may attain to the resurrection or so somehow attaining to the resurrection, or even if by any means I might attain the resurrection. And this verse, it draws question as to the sureness of the final resurrection. And what I would pose to you is Paul is just being humble. There isn't a question in Paul's mind of the final resurrection. 
One, comment, one commentator says this, he's, uh, of what Paul says here. He says, his participation in the resurrection depends upon God's favor, something we should never presume. He expresses humility and self-distrust, not doubt in the Lord. On the human side, it is doubtful, but on the side of the one working divine grace, it is certain. I think he has that right. I think this is just, a, just an expression of humility from Paul. Paul spoke with confidence of the future, future resurrection, but he expresses it in humility. Uh, as we close, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. Just a couple uh, books to our right. 1 Thessalonians 4. You'll find with sureness, Paul's describing... Uh, this, this future resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, we'll be in 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Again, with sureness, Paul's describing that the Lord will, in fact, return for his own. He says that the dead in Christ, they're going to rise up first. Then everybody who's alive and remain, they'll be caught up together with the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And the treasure of this resurrection, the end of verse 17, that we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. This resurrection was not sure, then there could not possibly be any sort of comfort in these words. There's not one lick of comfort in these words if this is not a sure thing that we're looking, looking forward to. This, this struggling church, they're despairing. They think that they maybe miss this event. Paul's purpose in giving, giving clarity to the final resurrection um, is that they would live now accordingly. Christ is coming back. There is a final resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul instructs them to not sleep, but remain awake, be sober. This is the treasure, Valley Bible Church, that this resurrection, it's imminent. It's going to happen. It will happen. Christ is coming back for his own. And in light of that, live in such a way that you will not be ashamed at his coming. Live in a way that you're not going to be ashamed at his coming. Do you see the intrinsic beauty and majesty of Christ? Do you see the treasures of knowing him and being known by him? Do you see the foolishness of holding on to anything more dear to you than holding on to Christ? The folly of trusting your own righteousness, your own works for right standing before God? Will you, like Paul, consider the loss of all things? Consider everything loss for the sake of gaining a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The hymn says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The reality is this, if you hold on to one drop of your own self-worth, your own achievements, possessions, in the hopes of being justified before God, Christ is of no benefit to you. He'll stand over you as righteous judge, and he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Following Christ, again, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us possessions. It's certainly going to cost your pride, your self-worth, relationships. It could cost relationships. It could, it could cost you your family. It could cost you your life. He's gracious. He doesn't always take those things from us, but it certainly could cost you those things. You'll certainly be hated. You'll be afflicted. You'll suffer. You'll suffer the loss of all that you have and all that you are. But you gain, again, the preciousness of Christ. He graciously and patiently, he's calling to us. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's who's calling to us. We have a very compassionate, personal Savior. When, when, when we come to Christ in genuine faith, he's not withheld himself from us in any way. He's not withholding himself from you. He's lavishly given you all things in him. Do you want to know how loved we are? You look to the finished work of Christ on the cross. You know that both the Father and the Son, they, they know everything about you. They know everything about who you are. They know everything about who you were. They know everything you've done. And yet Christ submitted to his Father. He went to the cross for you and I. You want to question if you're loved? Think about that thought. As we sang this morning, we were hellbound. We were running away from this gracious Lord. He's called us back to himself. And as Colossians 2 says, he took all those decrees and that certificate of debt, certificate of debt with all of our names on it, the certificate of debt, all this debt that we could never repay, he nailed them to a cross. And that was found perfectly and totally satisfactory to his father. Why give up all things for Christ? Because you gain truly all things. You will gain everything in Christ Jesus through the person of Christ. You, again, you have union with Christ. You're forever united to him. You have the imputation of his righteousness, a righteousness that you and I could never, ever earn or a way that we could never achieve to the law. You gain the power of the resurrection in you. So now you can actually live obediently because that power is at work in you. You've gained fellowship in your suffering. And lastly, again, we have the sure hope of the final resurrection. Again, make no mistake about it. He has got to be everything to us. If Christ is not everything, then if Christ is anything, he must be everything. And if he's not everything to you, then he's nothing to you. 
If Christ is not everything, he's nothing. There's no middle ground in this. And sure, we falter and we, we do sin. But if our life is characterized by that, and we're not constantly putting Christ Jesus, if we're not every single day taking up our cross, denying ourselves to follow him, and he's not your savior. He must be. If anyone here doesn't know Christ relationally, if you're not found in him, then I, then I urge you, be reconciled to him. Let go of your own righteousness. Let go of your pride. Consider the cost. He tells us to do that. Count the cost. Because it's going to cost everything. But I hope you see that what you, what you truly gain in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider all things lost and gain everything in Christ by faith in him. Don't go another second without knowing him. And again, we're not preaching some works gospel. As we've talked a couple times this morning, you can't earn it. He graciously, again, he does not always take everything from us, but we must be willing to do so. I hope we see the value of Christ. So <clears throat> let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you again uh, with empty hands. We come humbled by your majesty and goodness. Lord, we have no excuse. By your grace, the sufficiency of your word has shown us that all our good deeds truly are filthy rags. Our righteousness, our, our deeds that we've done in any attempt to be pleasing and acceptable to you, it's complete rubbish, we confess, Lord. So, Lord, soften our hearts to see the goodness and the precious gift of your Son. May we see your Son as just the precious jewel in the field that we are so gladly going to give up all that we have and all that we are to possess. May we rightly count the cost of true discipleship, Lord. May our hearts desire to give it all up so that we may gain Christ. And Lord, as we are found in him, may we never cease to worship in all of our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. May all we, uh, all we do just be done for your glory. Lord, if you had taken everything from us and all that we had is Christ, I just pray that our hearts would just delight in that treasure, that our master, our king, the one who loves us more than anyone, will never be taken away from us, Lord. We praise you and thank you in the infinitely powerful and matchless name of Christ. Amen.